Pod Academy. I'm Alex Bird. Following the election of Donald Trump, the alt-right has come to play a significant role in American political discourse. They are an upstart movement that rejects traditional conservatism and has championed Trump due to his opposition to political correctness. But how did a movement rooted in online and video game culture come to be so influential? Angela Nagel is an Irish writer and academic who has written extensively on the rise of anti-feminism and the revitalised online culture wars. She's recently written a new book called Kill All Normies, and in it she documents how fringe online politics and discussion boards have become mainstream. I spoke to her earlier this week to discuss the book, and we started by talking about when she believed the alt-right became a significant force. I mean, it has to be the election of Donald Trump. I know that's very recent, but... Maybe you could say before that something like Gamergate kind of brought a lot of different, you know, right-leaning movements or or even, you know, forums uh, and things that weren't very overtly political ended up kind of much more closely mingling and cross-pollinating over Gamergate. Those are the younger ones, you know, but... um, the the more serious people like uh, American Renaissance and um, you know Richard Spencer and people like that they were a bit older and they've been around for years and you know they they're taking things much more seriously and have been for a long time uh, but it was only when all these kind of very geeky sort of online subcultures started to come together that 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 it became it felt more legitimate to call it the alt-right rather than just the far-right. I see. And as you said, you kind of referenced the, the Gamergate movement. But how did that something that went from what was in theory about ethics in game journalism become a political ideology built around twin pillars of kind of misogyny and, and white supremacy? Um, well, essentially, depending on who you ask, the Gamergate thing is the gamers say that it's about ethics and gaming journalism. The people on the other side say that they were merely pointing out, you know, sexism in gaming and things like that, and that they ended up getting very viciously attacked. And, you know, the the internet, like the people involved in it love kind of endlessly, you know, having these competing intricate stories about really precise details of particular attacks and things like that, which I just don't find remotely interesting. I mean, the, you know, even if you take the most kind of conservative estimate of the level of attacks that were going on, they were really bad. I mean, even the ones that are just out there in the public to, for anyone to see. Um, and, and you know, somebody should be able, a, a critic should be able to argue that, that, that you know, that, that gaming is dominated by uh, sexist attitudes, for example. But essentially it was viewed by gamers. I mean, you know, the, 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 where they got the ethics and gaming journalism thing is a very long, boring story, but essentially it was really over political correctness. It was a battle over, uh, what they perceived to be feminists and anti-racists and liberals trying to change the culture and trying to take away their fun hobby to kind of destroy everything through liberal censorship. Uh, now one of the reasons I'm not very sympathetic to that is, is I just think, you know, as in film or in anything, I mean, there's room for, you know, these these were not people saying games that contain sexism should be banned. Uh, you know, they were simply pointing out that the, the kind of style that dominate has these um, attitudes to women that they had an issue with. Uh, so anyway, it became basically, for whatever reason, it, it seemed to it seemed to bring together 
all these different groups from like the Daily Stormer, which is a Nazi kind of uh, forum or website through to kind of apolitical, maybe, you know, vaguely sort of pro free speech types, you know, so it brought together all a whole range of people who, who in different ways saw themselves as opposing political correctness. And they were kind of politicized by the fact that a largely white male space was becoming invaded by kind of leftist politics and women in particular. Yeah, definitely. Leftist cultural politics. Yeah. And so how did it go from a, uh, a kind of a misogynistic reaction to that, to something that has become also very heavily based around white supremacy and kind of racial politics as well? Well, when I started looking at, let's say, reactionary online forums of different types, I started my PhD about seven years ago. I finished it about two years ago. And um, I was looking at anti-feminist forums. And at that time, opposition to feminism was like, was the main issue that really animated these kind of forums. And they really saw feminism as emasculating Western men, destroying Western civilization. And the race stuff kind of came later because uh, in a way it kind of made the arc of it made a certain kind of sense. So white Western men are emasculated. Then you have the, you know, invasion as they would see it of foreign uh, non-white men and particularly of Islam. Uh, and then Western men are too emasculated to to be able to defend uh, their civilization. So that's kind of more or less how it became about civilization. And feminists were seen as the kind of the weakening force. And then now if we fast forward to now that they've, uh, we're now in uh, 2017, are we now seeing the alt-right movement kind of splinter into two kind of sides as now we're more a respectable side, which I guess you kind of termed the alt-light, and then also another side that's starting to have kind of dangerous manifestations, such as the the attacks in Portland that left uh, left two men dead after they defended a Muslim teenager against a racially motivated attack. Yeah, I mean, the violent stuff, but you see, they're all kind of mixed in together. This is the problem. Uh, one thing that's, you know, so you'll have these kind of rallies, and they'll be called something like, I remember one particular rally and like, depending on where you saw it reported, it was either, and depending on whose like, Twitter you're following, it was either called like the Patriots Day rally or the free speech rally. And even the people who are on the, you know, the speaking list were a mixture of all the right people who think foreigners are invading the West and we're about, we're, you know, um, and, and they need to be like de- deported and, and stuff like that to kind of um, alt-light people who are, you know, would say they just want kind of free speech and national, uh, kind of civic nationalism or something like that. So they're all, they're all mixed in together and, and they're still kind of just about being held together by their opposition and their mutual hatred or their similar hatred of the kind of campus left, the online left, the cultural left, uh, that whole kind of aspect of the left, we'll say, the Antifa and stuff like that. So at this point, they're kind of more defined by what they oppose and than what they actually support. Uh, kind of. Well, I like if you get into the, the details of it, I mean, they distinguish themselves in a very particular way. So they get the you know, they get totally outraged if you don't recognize all the little gradations and different kind of subcultures within the whole thing. But but the thing is, they all go to the same 
protests, they all retweet each other. They all go on each other's shows and then they they sort of laugh at journalists who who think that they're the same in some way, you know, um, but they are. I mean, they do have kind of somewhat similar views, but I, I'm only kind of very pedantic and particular about it because I know that they would dismiss me as someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about if I don't spell it out each time, you know. Um, so the, so you have the alt-light, you have the alt-right who are explicitly about race. Uh, the alt-light are more the civic nationalists for pro-free speech types. Uh, some of them call themselves um, cultural libertarians, that kind of thing. But the violence, I, I suppose, I mean, they watched in sort of rage, basically, for for a long time, all the campus wars and the violence, say, like riots, like the one at Berkeley, which the one that was supposed to be Milo's last talk and things like that. And so they were kind of, you know, I mean, they think this is civilization on the brink of collapse. So they, they think it's worth going and, you know, uh, fighting over. And so just to go back, you mentioned kind of Milo, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who started out in the UK as a, a tech journalist and somehow became the leading leading face in the US uh, of the alt-right movement. He was kind of briefly shunned to the side uh, earlier this year due to comments he made about pederasty. Uh, how does that kind of, how does that logically fit in with a movement that's built around transgression and saying whatever you want and everything's a joke in their, in their eyes anyway? Mm, yes. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, so that was their style, but I suppose that was kind of a, in some way, the the core of the transgressive style of the alt-right comes from 4chan and similar kind of forums. But by the time Milo got to that point, 4chan had gone way, way, way to the right of him. So they were no longer sympathetic to him. Uh, the alt-right in the strict sense was no longer, was never really sympathetic to him, but was certainly no longer sympathetic at this point. Because he's flamboyant and he's gay and he's very pro-American and, um, you know, he has that kind of, he believes in, you know, American exceptionalism and things like that, which they loathe. And um, so so by the time that happened, he had kind of alienated lots of people and he had also kind of served his purpose for those to the right of him uh, because he moved the Overton window to the right. He broke all the taboos. And once he served his purpose, they were happy to get rid of him, I think. Milo is, uh, I think, from Kent in the UK, he's British. And then we also have people like Paul Joseph Watson, another fine British export, I guess. Why is it that they've kind of found their, their biggest audience in the US as opposed to in their, own, in their own country, I guess, in the UK? Well, this is a very American movement. Um, it, 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 it makes sense in America more than anywhere else. Because the thing is, I suppose America is... Um, it's sometimes said the left won the culture war and lost the economic war. America is the place where that is most evident, where there is a kind of, um, you know, a kind of cultural liberalism, uh, but people have not seen the benefits of the left in economic terms, basically. So you have, you know, identity politics is very, very strong and, Obviously, there are more, you know, long running kind of racial tensions there. But also the alt-right's main idea, if you could put it down to one thing, and this is the alt-right in the strict sense, is that equality is a lie. Uh, the idea that all men are created equal is a lie and that America is based on a lie because it is based on the idea that America is about abstract principles like liberty. 
when in actual fact they would say it's about race. It was founded by uh, Dutch and British uh, wasps, sort of, and that the character of America is what it is because of the racial component of its founders. And that the so the essential idea of America, which is that, you know, which is American exceptionalism, the idea that the state is not an ethno state, but is founded upon abstract ideas, that is really what they're targeting. And so that doesn't quite apply elsewhere to the same extent. So it's a very American phenomenon. It's also a very American phenomenon because it's a product of a very deep longing for identity. Um, in America, you know, the obviously, you know, if you are an ethnic minority, you have an identity. And even if you're white up until pretty recently, you might have an identity by being able to say, I'm Italian American, I'm Irish American, whatever. But at this point, that kind of Ellis Island um, wave are all so many generations on that it's getting ridiculous to say I'm whatever American, you know, you're just a white person at this point. So so those people, uh, that kind of particularly young men, young white men in America feel that they have no identity and that the only identity that they're allowed to have is one of feeling shame for their own heritage. And so then the alt right comes along and says, uh, "Your heritage is is brilliant, and you you know you know like white people achieved more than anyone else, and you should be proud, and your heritage goes back to Rome and all this kind of stuff." And it's very it's very powerful for them to hear that, you know. Uh, and just to tie into uh, Donald Trump, I guess, which is the as you said the really the coming out party for the alt right. Are they what do they see in him as a as a leader? Is he just a kind of just an extent of the joke around it, an ironic kind of championing of this fairly ridiculous man, or is there something they actually identify with in him? No, there's definitely something they identify with. I mean, they don't like him as much now because he hasn't done as much on immigration as they would like, and he, you know, the strikes in Syria and different things, and he's become a lot. He's become much closer to the, the, a standard kind of American president. Really, he, he's not doing as much crazy stuff as people thought. Um, as compared to the early days um, of his presidency. Um, but they, they like the fact that he is taboo-breaking and, and anti-PC because they understand that a lot of how a pluralistic society holds things together is through um, essentially a system of etiquette and manners, which some people call political correctness, um, that allows people who have very you know different religions different worldviews and so on to to live peacefully together and they want to smash those and they know that he is doing that and there's absolutely no doubt that he's he has done that um i mean the conversations that are going on publicly now around race would have been inconceivable uh, just a couple of months ago so they like that about him because they know that's very politically useful in particular, they like the fact that he has been very open about the anti-immigration stuff, uh, because for them, the first step is uh, limiting immigration and deporting illegal immigrants. And that's just the first step. But, you know, that he would be willing to do that. Now, the funny thing is, I mean, you know, they, they see Islam as the real um, invading army, kind of, you know, or the Islamist movement, we'll say. But... If you look at like Donald Trump is like, you know, sword dancing with the Saudi 
monarchy, while people on the left, like, say, Jeremy Corbyn, for example, proposed banning arms sales to Saudi Arabia, you know. So one thing that I find frustrating about them is um, they only seem to want to address issues when they can attack people of no power whatsoever. So they want to attack refugees on boats who are just, you know, who are like drowning in the sea. Uh, but they don't they won't support, you know, a political leader who might actually target much more significant figures in the rise of the, the ultra reactionary Islamist movement. And so that's when I have to say, you know, this isn't really about trying to just trying to to challenge that kind of movement. They're actually they, they only want to do it when it allows them to attack people who have no power. In the book, you kind of cite a lot of political thinkers who form the, like the basis of the alt-right and also kind of the treaties kind of written by Miley Yiannopoulos and others and kind of Richard Spencer, whenever he's interviewed, has got a long list of political thinkers. Do you think for the alt-right, I guess Richard Spencer may be different because, as you say, he's been doing this for so long, but for, for the majority of the alt-right, there's actually any political spine to their to the movement or is it just kind of dress up as a as the latest kind of political fad or political phase that's just the most objectionable to the kind of PC culture they kind of opposed to? Well, it's such a, a mess of just um, all kinds of different forums and, and these cross-pollinating kind of groups. So it's not a coherent movement. So it's very hard to to refer to a they kind of when I'm talking about that. Um, there are definitely people who have been, particularly younger men who have been attracted to the alt-right who maybe haven't really thought through the gravity of what they're saying. I mean, for example, the actual stated goals of somebody like Richard Spencer would involve genocide. I mean, there's simply no way you could achieve them without war and almost certainly genocide. So he wants America to be white again. He wants, you know, a white ethnostate in America. Uh, He wants Europe to be white again and to have a a sort of a white empire that goes from America to Russia to Europe. And, you know, if you think of um, any conflict where a minority were, where there was an attempt to move a minority off their land, uh, they tend to go on for a very, very long time and be very, very bloody, even when the, the piece of land is, you know, the size of a small town. So the idea that you could do this on a continental basis is, well, it's not it's not ridiculous. I mean, you could do it through sheer force, but it, it would require as I say, war and genocide. And, you know, and the people at the, at, who are serious must know this. Um, and so I don't think that the average teenage boy who's like has a Pepe avatar and a fake name on Twitter and, you know, hates feminists and is like a troll and stuff like that. I don't think somebody like that has seriously thought through the implications of the stated goals of some of the senior figures in the alt-right. And they're constantly, you know, the alt-right is constantly growing, or the the, the whole broader milieu, we'll say, right, including the Pepe's and the, the old light and the whole thing. That that is const- That is growing because they're constantly responding to what they see as a takeover of the left in the cultural realm and on campuses and, and things like that. As you say, like one of their stated goals is to return to a, a very much a patriarchal society where women are homemakers and there to provide for, look, to look after the family. And as you say, there's no real thought about how this would affect the workforce and kind of how this would work in reality at all. Yeah, I mean, um, 
yeah, they, they, they would have to shrink the workforce by half and then, you know, the Western world would, would decline as a geopolitical power immediately. Um, but also, I mean, how would they do that? Like, um, feminism, second wave feminism is a mass movement. There were feminists before, of course, but they didn't become a mass movement until there was an economic drive behind it, which was the massive economic expansion after World War II. Um, and, um, well, we'll say in the mid 20th century. And, um, you know, so how do you just shrink the economy back down, you know, to, to pre World War II levels? Um, uh, you know, so, so, but they're never asked questions like that. Um, unfortunately. Um, and, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that you can, they hate, they hate traditional kind of establishment conservatives we will say, right. Because they have this, they have this libertine kind of, uh, streak, uh, which is completely contradictory with, uh, the, the traditionalist stuff. Um, but I just don't see that they really have, um, they don't have a way of doing it. It doesn't make any sense economically. Um, how would they ever get women to go along with it? I mean, um, it's just, uh, it's not, it's not something that's thought through, but, but it certainly is a desire that they have. Uh, but you know, they want it both ways. Like they want to be able to be on 4chan and like, uh, you know, not having feminists take away their porn and stuff like that. Uh, but then they also say they want a traditional marriage, you know? So, um, they, they would have to, uh, have a very different online life if they, if they were to ever create the traditional society they claim to want. Do you think, I think that kind of, um, the idea of them wanting something without having to give anything, do you think that's kind of feeds into a generation on both sides on the left and the right, which kind of wants to have the benefits without really having to kind of give, give anything in return So like the liberals want all the benefits of globalism and multiculturalism without thinking about the consequences of these policies and the alt right wants, as you say, to kind of have all the good things about all the good things about kind of a folkish kind of lifestyle, but without really having to give up any kind of responsibility and kind of having to spend less time on the internet. Yeah. I mean, you know, it makes sense in a certain way because we are at a weird moment historically where people are seeing the, I think this is possibly also why the younger people, in this kind of world has such a bad reaction to Hillary, you know, cause she is the sixties, you know, person who was a young person in the sixties and who was involved in the feminist movement and stuff like that. Um, and who is now part of the establishment. Um, you know, a lot of younger people don't really see any benefits to, uh, the kind of cultural freedom that was won in the sixties. But there are also other things like, um, the fact that they know that they'll possibly never own a house or, you know, that they'll never have a stable lifelong relationship or, you know, that they'll never have be able to have any of these things, but that you, but kind of, you can have as much freedom as you want, uh, in a, you know, in a way, uh, you just don't benefit from any of it. So I can see why there is a right wing turn. Um, I do think it's also quite significant that, um, I think in a weird way, this is very much the generation that has come after in the wake of the Iraq war and all the subsequent, uh, like the, the, the different, um, military invasions in the Middle East. Uh, this may seem like a tangent, but I, I do think it's significant because I think that those military adventures really made it seem like 
the world is too complicated and it's not possible. And that if you go and you have this utopian universalist idea, which, I mean, a lot of the uh, Christopher Hitchens type of um, advocates, very articulate advocates for, for military invasions had actually a type of universalism and a type of internationalism that they got from their Marxist background. That in a way that the disaster of that and the repeated disaster after disaster, the development of ISIS, you know, um, the whole thing, it really kind of made younger people feel that the idea of exporting democracy is a sham. The idea that uh, there is some innate human desire for the uh, things that a democracy would bring is is a lie. Uh, and the idea that basically pe different peoples from around the world could be united in some way and in, in common purpose is just impossible. And and that the world is such a, a dark and kind of um, a, a place full of, of strange people that you can't really understand. You know, that that's kind of the feeling that this kind of younger generation have as a result of, of those, among many other things. I'm saying it because it's one of the factors that's not really ever talked about. I think that the, this generation are a product of, 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 that, of the kind of the death of a whole generation of cosmopolitan and internationalist sort of intellectuals on the right you had the neocons on the left you had the hitchens kind of um you know export democracy to the world people right it's kind of the the kind of cynicism and nihilism has kind of overtaken grand ideas on especially on the left and kind of crushed the life out of them almost and kind of showing everyone kind of no one really trusts in any kind of positive ideas not that that seems to be a great deal of them around at the moment mm, no it's so true though it's it's very much it's like real bunker politics you know it's everything you know everything will end in disaster and all we can do is close down everything close the borders bring in all these isolationist policies and and just hope that things get better i mean that you know because i don't see like even when they're trying to spin their ambitions as a positive thing, I don't really believe when I hear the alt-right talk about their ambitions that they are, have any positive vision of the future. But the problem is that there's a kind of, as you say, there's there's not much of that around anyway. And I think in many ways, the emergence of the alt-right are a sign of an absence of anything else. The, there's a total absence of a vision of the future uh, now that that whole, as I say, kind of internationalist, cosmopolitan, intellectual milieu are kind of uh, disgraced in a way, um, and their whole vision of the future was was made to look absurd and and um, nightmarish. That there's nothing has really replaced them. Uh, you know that would, you know, if you want to make the argument now for continued immigration levels that we have, I mean, who's really making that argument? The only thing holding it together is a sense that you you should have these views because it's polite or something like that. There's nobody making a positive case for something other than a kind of bunker politics of like close the borders, close everything down and try to avoid disaster. Do you think that's why kind of the culture war has become so become so important because the politics hasn't isn't actually able to deal with anything of significance. It's become like kind of bogged down in who can use what bathroom and kind of Julia and interpretations of Julius Caesar and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. The cultural politics has become everything. Um, 
Uh, and it's in part because, um, you know, we've been in this kind of, you know, long economic decline. Wages have been stagnating for decades. Everything seems to be declining and declining. Younger people have, you know, are less likely to be upwardly mobile than their parents and their grandparents. So everything is in decline and nobody seems to be able to stop it, you know, and we have this whole, you know, vast network of experts and economists and all kinds of people. And, um, but nobody seems to be able to stop this. And, and I think the hopelessness in the economic realm and the hopelessness in the political realm in, in the sense of ideas can reshape society, that kind of thing has led to a retreat into purely cultural politics, which is very individualistic, very self-absorbed, very much about my feelings and my self-expression. And um, that's definitely evident on both sides, for sure. Um, what do you think, I mean, as you said, it's kind of hard to speak generally about the alt-right as a movement, but it largely seems to be a, a younger movement than it's generally active in politics. What do you think happens to them when they grow up um do they kind of are they will they become like donald trump in that they are kind of become more moderate and kind of more by the book uh republicans or is this the new face of, of the republican party for instance in america it's very hard to say but i will say that a bit of age does change people's politics like the cultural politics are very prominent, but age tends to beat that out of you a little bit because you start having to pay taxes and you start having to, you know, pay rent and the the material day-to-day -day stuff starts to matter an awful lot more. And so it's at that point that they won't care exclusively about cultural politics, you know, um, and they'll start to, you know, so if 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 Donald Trump or whatever can't give them what they want economically, they the, they may look elsewhere, you know. Um, and it lo it looks like he's gonna be a pretty typical president in in that way. Um, he you know he was supposed to be this kind of like he was supposed to be someone who'd like reinvigorate infrastructure. Uh, he was supposed to be you know ripping up all the international trade deals, uh, reinvigorating the industrial economy stuff like that but you know there's not i i don't really see that panning out in the way you know so and healthcare of course as well he's taken the standard republican line on that so i don't know i think that um i think that time will will change the the priorities of all these young men and certainly the the big achievement the single greatest achievement of the old right and the very broad milieu around them going all the way over to Donald Trump is that they have moved the Overton window. They have moved acceptable speech way, way, way to the right of what it was just a year ago. Just to finish off with, a, um, I think it was the Slavoj Zizek who supported the, who kind of, who, as a Marxist, put himself behind Donald Trump as a way of forcing a reaction out of a pretty moribund left to kind of force them out of their complacency. Do you think that now with the alt-right becoming not even not a major player, but certainly a significant movement. And now with Donald Trump in the White House, that will hopefully kind of force some more kind of intellectual rigor out of the out of the left. Yeah, I think the way that the left has to approach it is to say, you know, don't just dismiss uh, these right wing movements, but see them as a sign of things to come. If you don't, um, if you don't find a way to uh, 
really provide a convincing alternative, you know, and uh, I have been excited to see uh, people like Sanders and Corbyn, uh, but I think uh, we haven't really worked out how we're going to deal with the fact that, um, you know, there is a lot of anti-immigration sentiment out there. There is a lot, there is a desire, you know, people like Le Pen, you know, doing very well. There is a lot, there is a desire there for, for change and it could go in a lot of different directions the the kind of stagnant decline or you know the, that we're in now kind of can't just continue and people are going to look in all kinds of different directions for you know to to blame someone for that or to try and fix it so the left has to rise to that challenge and it's going to be very difficult and it's going to involve rethinking itself a bit and um, having an internal culture of robust debate where ideas are not shut down because that's what we have had and it's produced a left that has been very unable to deal with the challenge of the right. Kill All Normies is published by Zero Books and is available from June 30th. To listen to further episodes of Pod Academy, please subscribe on iTunes and check out our website at www.podacademy.org. Thanks for listening.